Hi, and welcome to Harvest Bible Chapel, Kuala Lumpur Online. We hope that the following message will be a blessing to you as you seek to walk with the Lord in spirit and in truth. For more information about our church, please visit www.harvestkl.org or click the link in the description below. Uh, We have been going through Isaiah or Isaiah. Um, We are in Isaiah chapter four. So if you will open with me to Isaiah chapter four. This is our fourth week into it. And so uh, you, uh, I began in Isaiah 1, and then um, a brother by the name of Luke shared with us from Isaiah 2, and then another brother by the name of Andy shared with us from Isaiah 3. And so here we are at Isaiah 4. If you've been with us in these first three chapters, they are heavy chapters, um, as many of the prophets do, they, they begin with, uh, they, they get our attention right off the bat. Um, in, in Isaiah, it begins in a courtroom scene. And it is God speaking to his people about the ways in which they do not reflect the God they claim to serve and trust. We have glimpses of hope in those three chapters, but it's been hard news. Israel was morally corrupt and ethically compromised. Um, So Jerusalem and Judah, the nation in which Jerusalem um, uh, was, uh, was on trial before God. And so um, for those on trial, some of the charges out against Jerusalem and Judah. Oppression, guilty as charged. Pride, guilty. Murder, guilty. Corruption, guilty. Allowing the exploitation of the vulnerable, guilty. Sorcery, guilty. Warmongering, guilty. These charges are just the beginning. This is not the full list of things, but it gives you an idea of the different ways in which Jerusalem was failing to live up to the standards that God had set for them. In in chapter 3, verse 9, it says it's not merely their sin, but it's their flaunting of sin. It's not just the fact that they are, are sinful, but they are prideful about it. In the last part of that verse, it says, woe to them for they have brought evil on themselves. And yet I bet if we were to do one of those like street cam interview things on the streets of Jerusalem 2,700 years ago, uh, which would involve some time travel, I know, um, I imagine a lot of people would think, hey, we're okay. We're good. They would probably have their complaints about the government or maybe their bosses or their neighbors. 
perhaps the elite in the city. But that's not the way these charges roll out. The fact is that everyone is involved in this. Isaiah's clear warning is an attempt to wake them up. I rode over here earlier with Brian and he was reversing into the parking place. And in Malaysia, vehicles are automatically come with, unless it's broken, they automatically come with something when you're reversing. Do you know what that is? Yeah, it's a little beep beep noise, right? And when you get close to an object, there's like a beep, 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 right? And then when you get closer, what happens? It speeds up, beep, 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 beep. And then when you hear the flat beep, what, what's, what's the warning there? Stop, or you're gonna crash into something. This is what God is doing here. He's beginning with the slow beeps. He's increasing to the, the, the rapid beeps. And now he's at the point of like, beep. I'm sure you love that sound through the speakers. <laughs> God is warning us. This is not how we're meant to be, not how we're meant to live. So let's read the passage. It's a short passage today. And then we will walk through this in three parts. So I'm going to read verses two through six. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and, the, and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This is the word of the Lord. So this morning, we're gonna walk through this in three parts. The city beautiful trying it our way. And then the second part will be the city made beautiful. And thirdly, the ingredients of revival. We have lots of ways of trying to make life better. I mean, who doesn't want a better life, right? And maybe a better society. Um, they're, they're so intertwined that to have a better society also can help you have a better life. I've chosen four common ways that people try making life better. This is not a complete list. There are other ways, but I hope these four help us kind of connect with maybe some of the ways that we try to make life better. 
Two of them aim at trying to make society better around us. And then two of them are more like us trying to make ourselves better and just leaving society on its own. So the first way is this, the economic way. In the age of the industrialization, when they started building factories in the cities, particularly in Europe, uh, factory production became the priority, assembly lines. And it came at a really high human cost. The urban poor were the ones who ended up bearing this cost forced to work long hours, getting almost nothing in wages, dangerous work environment, injuries, even death were common. School-aged children forced to work instead of giving an opportunity for an education. Work conditions were terrible, unsanitary, and unsafe. It benefited some, while exploiting others who were more or less locked into servitude. And it's all to feed the economic drive. So you might be thinking, well, that was then. We've gotten better since then. Have we? Last week, I had lunch with a man who worked uh, for a company more or less demanded him to be at work from 6 a.m. to midnight. Just about every day. He never saw his family. When his boss called him, even when he wasn't at work, he was expected to respond immediately. That's not that different from the industrial age. He was talking about a coworker who is so overworked. She was driving home here in KL and just stopped her car in the middle of the, the road, broke down crying, just shattered by, by a, a work life that had taken all of her humanity away from her. Work itself is not bad. But when, we, when it becomes a system that dehumanizes, when it becomes a system that exploits, when it becomes a system that takes us away from other better pursuits, it's greed run amok. We've allowed financial gain and ambition to dominate our lives, and we justify it by saying, but this money can go to help, can, can do good somewhere. But at what cost? And is that what we've been created for? To work every waking hour. So that's the economic way. Another way that we try to make society better is the government way. Sometimes we pin our hope, our hopes and dreams to having a better government, maybe even a new style of government. You pick it, everyone's, people have tried it. We maybe have experienced personally hopes in a political candidate 
who quickly we realized was not to deliver on those campaign promises. Turns out maybe was just as corrupt as the, the person that was already in office. Turns out to have used unethical means to get to this place of power. It turns out loves the power so much that it um, distorts who that person is intended to be. Even politicians that are really intent on creating a better society, they, they, they're in a system that is so complicated by corruption and power and personal agendas, benefiting one group over another, it becomes a mess. Ironically, there was a, in, uh, so my, um, we all have a, like a, a nerd side, right? Some people it's video games, some people it's Star Wars. Uh, for me, it's cities. I love cities. Um, I love studying about cities. So there was this a movement called the City Beautiful Movement. And the idea was that if we, that there's all of these problems in cities, and if we just make them more beautiful, that everyone will start responding better, acting better. It's a little bit like you're, you know, in the old days, you know, you're, you're more well-behaved in church than you are out on the street, right? Um, so the City Beautiful movement was, in, their, their goal was to create the new Jerusalem, actually. But the poor were no better off in this attempt. In fact, they were more vulnerable to the dreams of others. In some places, they made these beautiful areas, but then made them inaccessible to much of the city. Even the sincerest politician enters a system that is so broken that he or she will have to make choices that favor one group over another. And maybe sometimes encourage systems that devalue human life. I've watched Christians in every country that I've lived in pin their hopes on the next political candidate only to see them fail to deliver on those promises or worse. And every political system ultimately fails us because it fails to account for how damaged we are as humanity. Surely there must be something better. A third way that we might try to make life better is the therapeutic way. In fact, this might be the most common way people try to make things better for themselves. In some ways, this, this, I, this way says, I can't do anything about the world around me, so I'm going to make myself feel better. Karen and I got in, a, in the car the other day and the radio just was on and it was one of those, you know, good advice things that they do in Malaysian radio. Um, not used to that in radio stations in the United States. Um, it's mostly just bad advice, I guess. I don't know. Um, but it was basically saying that you need to prioritize yourself and you don't need to do what others ask of you. 
um, you just need to put yourself first and stand up for yourself. And uh, and I, I think I get the, the the positive point of that, which is don't be don't let others push impose their will on you. But without any other explanation, if we have a world where everyone just prioritizes themselves, it's gonna it's it's a bad bad world. Sometimes this therapeutic way suggests that feeling bad or guilty is not good. Now, I want to clarify, I want to pause to clarify something here. My goal is not to dismiss therapy, all therapy and counseling. There are times when we need to work through difficult things, and someone trained in this can be really helpful. And there are times when we need clinical or even psychiatric help, and that is also important. So please don't hear me dismissing this altogether. But we need to be aware that a lot of therapists and counselors, actually all therapists and counselors, all people really, are operating with assumptions about our world and about humanity that might be different from your understanding of the world and humanity that is hopefully shaped by, by this. So in other words, a therapist might be guiding you in some ways that are counter to what the Bible says. And so we need to be aware of, of that, that reality. So there are those who simply push you to be positive all the time and to, to ignore any sense of guilt or personal wrongdoing. And, and that's essentially ignoring a world where brokenness and betrayal is real. And though, even though we may feel like we've been wronged in so many ways, we still contribute to the wrong in our own ways. We all play a role in this. And it's not to dismiss the wrong of others, but to completely ignore our own wrong is not healthy. Is it possible that these feelings of guilt and shame are supposed to be there? That's part of the human wiring. That guilt and shame are are tools, they're the warning beeps in some ways that where there's something wrong there. It's alerting us to our waywardness. So too often therapy is like a Panadol covering up the pain when real treatment is needed. Okay, the fourth way in which we try to better ourselves. This is the longest of the three points, so just to comfort you a little bit. The fourth way is the anything goes way. The three ways we've discussed so far all involve being proactive, working hard to make life better. The anything goes way is sort of the I've given up approach to things. 
there's no way little old me can change anything externally or internally. So some people just give up making anything better for them, uh, for anything better, and they just do whatever they want. It's an all-out living for ourselves that can be, it can be tempting. And in some ways, billions of dollars are spent on advertising to lure us to just that, right? You deserve this Frappuccino. You deserve, you know, to pay thousands of dollars for a mattress. You know, whatever it is, they're trying to get you to serve yourself. And it, and it does bring temporary moments of pleasure, but it can be destructive as well. And before we know it, things that give us pleasure soon can control us, whether it's food, video games, alcohol, shopping, sports, anything can pull us into the point that we become enslaved to it. More critically, it leads us to live life as if there is no God and no purpose in our lives. The, the fancy word for this is nihilism, the belief that life is meaningless. A couple of nights ago, there were a couple of three young men came over um, that we knew through our neighborhood. Um, they came to play, play like board games. One of the young men, he lives this way, really. For him, there isn't much more to life than hanging out with friends, his very selected friends, and playing video games. And even though he can have fun and he can smile, there's, there's an emptiness there that comes out when he talks. His friend that was with him, he knew that there was, that there, there needed to be more to life than that. He, he felt like there needed to be more to life than just making money the economic way. And so he, he was searching out purpose. Each of the ways that we've talked about this morning, uh, when, it, when it boils down to it, they don't involve God. And they really don't give us real purpose. The other thing that they all four have in common is they, they end up putting our desires, our agenda first. And we ignore what God wants, God's agenda. So second point, the city made beautiful. I'm going to read verses five and six again. Then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory, there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for the shade by day from the heat and for a refuge and a shelter from the storm and rain. This, this passage is not describing the Jerusalem of Isaiah's day, but a city of the future. 
And unlike the futuristic cities that you maybe read in science fiction or, or see in movies, there aren't like flying cars buzzing around, um, obscenely tall buildings. What marks Zion or the new Jerusalem is completely different. It's a place where God is with his people. God Almighty resides in this city. The smoke and flaming fire recall the presence of God with his people in the wilderness in Exodus. Smoke and fire symbolize God's presence at several points throughout the Bible. To be in God's presence also means Zion is a place of God's holiness and glory. From Isaiah 2, at the beginning, it says, we know that the nations are there, and we see an, an unusual and unrealized kind of peace there. Why? Because the people of God's city walk in his paths. Instead of the, the ways of thinking about life and society without God, this stands in like a, a, just a clear contrast with these other ways of trying to better life. Where God is at the center of this life. It describes a canopy in this passage. And, uh, you know, uh, biblical scholars tell us that this is a wedding canopy. A few weeks ago when we were in Ephesians, we talked about the church being the bride of Christ. And throughout the Bible, there's this imagery of, of the people of God being wedded to God. We are his chosen bride. And what this tells us is God is not just some distant divine deity in the sky that demands empty rituals. Rather, God desires a relationship with us. He desires intimacy with his people. The picture of this new city is, a, is beautiful because it's a picture of God being reconciled with his people and his people being reconciled with each other. Instead of the different ways that we struggle to make life better, Isaiah shows us that there is a way for life to get better. But what does this mean for us? That's the future. What does it mean for us? Is it possible for us to enjoy this future? So third point, the ingredients of revival. And I'm going to go back over the first four verses that we read this morning. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy. Everyone has been recorded for life in Jerusalem when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the bloodstains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a spirit of burning. Our reality is a world in pieces where our sinfulness 
adds to the layers of sinfulness in society. We, whether we work really hard for a better life or society, or whether we just live for ourselves, either way, it's an empty pursuit. There's a problem, though, this describes this, this city where God's people are holy. We're not fit to be in Zion. The charges laid out against Jerusalem in chapters 1 through 3 can also be laid out against us. We are guilty. And if we are guilty, then our presence in God's city would only mess up God's city. In fact, this passage in chapter 4, if we follow chapters 1, 2, and 3, and we get to kind of what the result of this, it really should declare death. But it doesn't. It says, in that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious. The branch of the Lord is an image for the, the prophets used to refer to the line of David. Despite the sinfulness of God's people, verse 4 says, the Lord himself washes away the filth and the stains on the people. But this passage also indicates that not everyone will be in this future city. Those who are in this future city are those who have been washed. Others remain committed to their ways. The other ways we described. So the problem, though, is there seems to be a big gap between where we are and where God wants us to be, which is in a relationship with him. So how do we become a people in the presence of God? How, do, how are we to be renewed, revived, brought back to life again? In church circles, we talk a lot about revivals. And I, I don't know what your experience has been with revivals or with talking about revivals. I hear many Christians say, this nation needs revival. Have you heard that? Maybe you've said it. I don't know. We often think um, it's, it's those people that need revival. It's other people that need revival. And we think about revival the same way we think about those other ways to try to get better. That if we just do this, this, and this, then we can make it happen. We just pray extra hard and extra long amounts of time. We preach every night for long camp meetings, and the revival will happen. It's not how revivals work, though. As long as we think the problem is with other people and not ourselves, we've missed the point. Revival begins with us, in our hearts. We are not where we need to be with God. So let me give you an example from the early 1900s. 
in Pyongyang, Korea. There was not a north and south at that point. Missionaries had arrived in Korea after a long time of being kept out. And this included a Canadian missionary by the name of R.A. Hardy. They had seen people convert, but it seemed still superficial. It did not seem as if they had truly encountered God. And this was frustrating to the missionaries. And so they wanted, they were praying for the Koreans to encounter God. They wanted them to experience revival. They tried to preach and pray their way to it. At a meeting among just the missionaries in 1903, R.A. Hardy began to confess his sins. Others at this meeting began to do the same. An overwhelming sense of God's presence took hold in this meeting. And as the missionaries began to repent before God, their work was transformed. They were no longer trying to push revival. Their experience of confessing and worshiping in the presence of God was infectious to the people around them. And it led to a revival among Korean believers. Within a few years, several hundred thousand Koreans believed and had this amazing encounter with God. So why am I telling you about this thing that happened more than a hundred years ago? Because the missionaries that went to Korea were trying to create their own change in Korea. I mean, with spiritual language, of course, but what they discovered was that God wanted to begin with them first. What about you? How are you trying to make things better, if you're being honest? How is it going for you? What stands in the way of things getting better? Isaiah is telling us that our own ways actually get in the way of a truly better life. Our sin prevents us from anything better. But because of the beautiful branch of the Lord, which refers to the line of David, God gave us the Messiah. It says in chapter, in chapter 1, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Isaiah 4.4 4 says, the Lord washed away our filth. This morning, take a moment to reflect, meditate on where you are. What are you giving your effort to? Are you putting your effort towards the economic way? Are you hoping for a government to make all the changes? Or, or maybe you're hoping you can address the world's problems through self-help therapy. Or have you just given up altogether and just living for yourself? Maybe you're hoping for a superficial spiritual solution. A little extra prayer and preaching will do the, do the trick. The branch of the Lord is called beautiful and glorious because it reveals God was, that was not content to leave us struggling by ourselves to make things better. 
God sent Jesus Christ into the world who would take all of our filth upon himself. This is how we are washed. Like the missionaries in Korea, even though they were Christians, very committed ones even, they had held back from God. When they confessed before God and others that God then was at a stage where he could use them. Until we are desperate for God, I will continue, we will continue to work in our own strength. About uh, 50 years ago, there was another revival in East Malaysia in Sarawak, often known as the Barrio Revival among the Kalabit people. And in the in a book describing the Barrio Revival, it, it talks about this, this time where the Christians were, they were, they were trying to do those things that I described to make, get a revival to happen. But actually it says revival came in a most unexpected manner. Young people began to have a deep desire for more of God. It was strange to everyone. It wasn't the normal, just do more churchy things. It was a deep desire for more of God. Friends, this morning, my prayer is that we would all experience a deep desire for more of God, and that out of that, he would begin to shape, harvest, and impact this city, so that this city might one day look more and more like that city to come, where God resides in our midst. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. And we know, God, that um, all it takes is a quick glance at the news to know things are not okay all around the world. So much hurt. So much of it is humanly caused hurt and pain. And Father, to, to acknowledge that, that our, our, we're a part of that. We contribute to the pain. And Father, that we try to solve and make things better in our own ways. Father, we confess to you that we cannot do this on our own. And so, Father, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us. And, Father, that we would know you, that we would come to be more aware of you. That as we do so, we'll be more aware of the ways in which we fall short of your glory. And we'll be more aware of the beauty of your holiness and your goodness, your love. So, Father, I pray that you would move among us, that you would transform us individually and together as a family. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.